Olympic-sized podcast about the history of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natalie, and with me are my lovely uh, co-hosts, or whatever they want to call themselves. We have... Oh, I'm a recurring guest, Frank Costello. (laughs) Um, I'm Sarah. I'm I'm sitting over here. (laughs) I don't know that it's a visual medium. (laughs) Only medium. This is going very well. Yeah, and and uh, sounds like my cat Mimi's gonna make a nuisance of herself. So, oh yeah, my god, <laughs> she's also a recurring guest. And a recurring guest, Mimi, my jerk cat. All right, not to be confused with Gabby, who was scratching my chair in an earlier episode. Don't but anyway, speak, <laughs> don't speak ill of Gabby. I yeah, won't have yeah. it. I won't have that happening on this podcast. Sarah loves Gabby. It's a very special kind of love. Gabby Defense League. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we are on to. St. Louis, 1904. Ah, America. Yes. This is when the Olympics really get good. <laughs> All right. So. Is, uh, so, like 1904, that's when America was great. Yes. Cool. Yes, exactly. Oh, awesome. This is where we're. This is where we're headed. No, we're it's headed too topical. Back, we're headed back here. Um, it's great. It's fine. This is going to be at least two episodes, uh, and I haven't really looked at how many pages this is. It may be three. There's a lot that happened. So we have. Because uh, we fixed everything that was wrong with the Olympics. Yeah. Well, we had a pretty good jumping off point, right? Like, last time was the Paris uh, set, and they and arguably a downward trajectory from Greece. They did um, some yeah. French stuff. They, they really would, Frenched it up. I would say, well, we can sort of clarify that, right? Sort of lack of a proper venue, I think, was an issue compared to what the Greeks... Even though the Greeks had literally a bay instead of a pool... Well, that was common at the time, because yeah. the plumbing really like, wasn't up to the task of making indoor Fair. They had a reasonable stadium, and I think we kind of lost that temporarily. But now in St. Louis, where I assume there's lots of space in the surrounding countryside. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of space. <clears throat> um, so I'm really setting this up here. Like, come yeah. on. Like, follow through on this. Uh, you want to, here's the actual <laughs> intro I wrote. Oh, no. So after the Paris debacle, I remember, like, nothing was called Olympic. Like, it's arguably not even the Olympics that happened in 1900. Um, Mimi, we hear you, and we acknowledge your feelings, but we need to, uh, move on. So, so after the Paris debacle, the IOC took stock of what was wrong and made sure that the 1904 Olympics were more in keeping with the 1896 Olympics in Athens, eschewing any interference from outside interests. Right? No. (laughs) They got absorbed into the Louisiana Purchase Centennial Exposition in 1904. But before we get to how that happened, here's some info about what that thing was. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition was held in St. Louis in 1904. It was supposed to be on the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, but they missed that by a year. This is the same level of really good counting that gave us a 97 point something body temperature reading that should have been 100 IC. Yeah. Uh, A little background on what the Louisiana Purchase was and why that was a big deal. In 1803, France controlled a gigantic area of land in the middle of what is now the United States. It was 2.14 million square miles, square kilometers, or 828,000 square miles. Starts in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, and goes up the Mississippi through Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, across North Dakota and Montana, and then back down, uh, I think, the Colorado River, through Wyoming, Colorado, a little bit of New Mexico and Texas, and then back to Louisiana. The states of Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota are all in the middle of it. Uh, President Jefferson bought the land from Napoleon in 1803 for 68 million francs, or about 15 million in today's money. 15 million dollars in today's money. 
Napoleon sold it due to rebellion in a different one of their territories and war with Great Britain. They just didn't have the resources to deal with a massive amount of frontier land in the middle of North America, and we wanted it anyway. People manifest destiny. I have always appreciated how many states that aren't Louisiana were in the Louisiana first. Yeah, it's like like a third of of the country. (laughs) It's just all of the Midwest. Yeah. (laughs) And a good portion of the South. Uh, so this deal worked out pretty good for us, uh, as Americans, and in 1898 they decided to have a big expo to commemorate it, but they didn't get their act together in time, so that's why it was on the 101st anniversary. Mimi, we hear you. Alright, um, they debated between hosting it in Kansas City or St. Louis, and ultimately landed on St. Louis. The expo cost about $15 million in 1904 dollars. I don't know what that translates to today. A combination of local government funding, local fundraising, and federal funds earmarked by President McKinley. It was actually about even. Government was like five million, local government five million, local fundraising five million, and federal funds five million. It lasted from April 30th, uh, 1904 through December 1st, 1904. Just under 20 million people attended. 60 countries and 43 of the 45 American states had exhibitions, and it was held on a 1,200-acre site that is now part of Forest Park and Washington University. It's held 1,500 billions, connected by 75 kilom- kilometers of walkways, kilometers, sorry. The agricultural complex alone was 20 acres. From the Wikipedia article, historians generally emphasize the prominence of, of themes of race and empire and the fair's long-standing impact on intellectuals in the fields of history, art history, architecture, and anthropology. From the point of view of the, of the memory of the average person who attended the fair, it primarily promoted entertainment, consumer goods, and popular culture. Some of the good things to come out of the St. Louis Expo included the public debuts of wireless telephones. Uh, Wait, what? <laughs> a wireless telephone. Technology that would later be used to develop radios and early mobile phones. Now I have questions. I don't know mm-hmm. anything else about mm-hmm. this. It was, no, no, uh, this is mm-hmm. all this episode is about now. No. What? <laughs> Listen, yeah. that was an early Windows phone built. <laughs> <laughs> they had, I guess it was like a two-way radio kind of thing. How was the Wi-Fi in <laughs> the 1904 Olympics? Um, I think they only had one. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. It probably wasn't very exciting. There probably weren't any good websites. Yeah, visit. I mean, yeah, it was like... You didn't even have Ask Jeeves back then. You just used your phone to call people? You had like probably a literal slave named Jeeves. <laughs> oh. Are we not to the racist part of We're the We're not Olympics? to the racist part oh. yet. Oh. Okay. Yeah, we'll get there. The, te- the teleautograph, <laughs> an early fax machine called the teleautograph. The Finson light, an early form of radiation therapy that was used to treat lupus. Uh, the x-ray machine, the infant incubator, um, which was how we stopped premature babies from dying all the time. No, that's that's a great invention. Yeah. That thing is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, this Olympics sounds like a better CES than the last four or five actual CES. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> that's really fair. Um, infant incubator, electric streetcar, personal automobile, and airplanes. There was also a lot of really horrible things that happened during these months, and don't worry, we'll get to them. So, how did it happen again? <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be this way. Louisiana Purchase Exhibition was supposed to happen in 1903. The 1904 Olympics were supposed to be in Chicago. The Cooper team was going to be more involved, and they were going to be closer to the 1896 Games with a shorter event span focus on the whole Olympic theme of everybody competing equally, Sidious, Altius, Fortius, and all that, um, which they actually adopted at this point. They had that slogan by now. Oh, that yeah. was fast. Yeah. Um, there's actually a couple of other Olympic things that came out through this. Um, 
what went wrong? Mimi, you're right in my face. Right? <laughs> Sorry, my cat is like smelling my chin while I'm trying to talk. I think the appropriate response is to edit out the uh, part where you talk to the cat, not to follow it up with the part where you talk about talking to the cat. Well, I mean, or I could explain what I'm saying. <laughs> Because, I mean, how much editing are we going to do? Uh, that's an excellent <laughs> question. What went wrong? Other than what's going wrong here. All right. First, the expo was delayed to allow for the participation of more states of our countries, which put the 1904 Olympics in potential conflict with them. And nope. James Sullivan... Interjection question. Yes. How many more countries do we need to participate in the Louisiana Purchase Festival? You know what's going to be fun? How many countries actually participate in the Olympics? Please tell me it's one. It's, it's more than one, but not much more. All right, James Sullivan was involved, is the other problem. If you remember from the previous episode, James Sullivan was an asshole. <laughs> He's the one who disgraced Arthur Duffy over shoes. And I swear, I, can't, I couldn't find this again, but I know I read this in, in part of my research earlier on. I came across the story of when de Coubertin met Sullivan. They met once uh, in 1893. Uh, when de Coubertin was working on getting support for the first Olympic Games. And this was in one of the books I had to return before I was totally done with them because it was on hold. Uh, but essentially, de Coubertin was in Chicago or something, meeting with a different guy, and Sullivan ended up at the meeting, and they just instantly loathed each other. Jane Sullivan was a white supremacist, specifically an American white supremacist. He thought that white American athletes were superior to all others and intended to use the Olympics to prove it. I don't know if he specifically said those words to de Coubertin, but we can imagine how somebody with that point of view might offend the cosmopolitan, relatively egalitarian de Coubertin. Uh, I really thought we were going to get to the 20s or 30s before the white supremacist Olympics came up. Yeah, oh. no, yeah. No, that, oh, no. This lasts a while. Oh, oh no, we've always been like that. This is true. Like, it, I mean, wait till we get to the 80s and what they did to Surya Bongoli. But, um... No, that, but, like... <clears throat> this is what fine. America brings. Calling ahead, yeah. This is, <laughs> this is, this is our contribution to society. To yeah. the world, we're the worst people. Well, to be fair, the white supremacy isn't limited to America. That's fair, but we places. do we do a lot of it. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, De Coubertin and the IOC were preparing to hold the games in Chicago. Oh, I also like I, I think I put this in a, an aside, but I don't know if any of you saw X Men Apocalypse when they encounter Wolverine for the first time and when he runs off. Like Scott Summers is like, "Well, I hope we never see that guy again." <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was like De Coubertin's opinion of Sullivan. <laughs> And he, he came back, and he stuck around That's for a good. while. Uh, the IOC, uh, De Coubertin and the IOC were preparing to hold the games in Chicago when James Sullivan decided he wanted it. Sullivan, who was president of the American Athletic Union at the time, and chief of physical culture for the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. Uh, this was when the expo was still set to be in 1903. But Sullivan was living in St. Louis at the time and was partial to the city anyway and had failed to had made a failed bid to host the 1904 Olympics. He said that de Coubertin had no right to decide where the Olympics would be, as he had been, quote, stripped of his athletic powers by the French government, and therefore, quote, no longer in control of international meetings. Uh, it is encouraging to see an American care so much about the opinions of the French government. <laughs> <laughs> but that never was, happen again. That was from what happened in the Paris Olympics, where, like, the, Paris, the French government were like, no, we're running it. You go be ambassador or whatever, make sure all these people show up. Um... So, de Coubertin ignored uh, Sullivan's attempt to usurp and continued to work with William Mulligan Sloan, a Princeton University professor and most senior American member of the IOC. He was also a founding member of the IOC. Uh, there was some debate between New York and Chicago, but ultimately decided on Chicago. In 1901, Sloan and two other American IOC members, Caspar Whitney and Theodore Stanton, were actually able to convince Sullivan that Chicago wasn't a choice. 
But then the Expo got pushed back to 1904, and they planned to hold the AAU championship there, as conveniently the president of the AAU was also the chief of physical culture at the Expo, Sullivan. Sullivan and the other organizers of the Expo were convinced that a potential Chicago Olympics would present a considerable conflict with the Expo. In November of 1902, the Chicago Olympic Committee narrowly voted to put the decision on relocation in the hands of the IOC. Henry Ferber Jr. was a Chicago corporate lawyer who was really spearheading the Chicago bid. A lot of what the St. Louis Committee was doing happened while he was on a cruise. And after the vote to turn the decision over to the IOC, this is what he had to say in a letter to Dukubiki. There was no way to get to him on the cruise. We hadn't invented cell phones yet. Yeah. That wouldn't come for another year. (laughs) That's why they did it then. They, like, specifically timed it that he wouldn't be reachable. So uh, St. Louis has organized and paid has an organized and paid corps of officials that could outstrip us in promptness and efficiency of work. The official recognition of the national government, which would embarrass us in our missions abroad, a huge over six million dollars appropriation from the government, plus sums from states involved, thus blocking our own efforts. And Chicago might place uh, St. Louis might place Chicago in the light of mischie- mischievously competing in an enterprise in whose success the honor of the nation is involved. If we try to carry out our program in 1904, St. Louis will jeopardize our enterprise. She will injure us in a thousand different ways. It would be better to accept the invitation of St. Louis and transfer the games to that city than attempt to conduct them in, at Chicago in the face of difficulties with which St. Louis would oppose us. Still, my dear friend, I do not believe that this would be the wisest course. In my official letter, I have suggested a postponement to 1905. If this plan should meet with your approval, I see the greatest possible success for us. So Ferber wanted to push it back a year so they wouldn't be in conflict with the expo. Okay, but I would say even odds that they just keep slipping the Louisiana <laughs> Purchase Festival back a year. Well, the, the Olympics weren't the big deal then. Mm-hmm. Remember, France didn't even want them. Like, <laughs> like uh, Sullivan really wanted them. And like, oh, oh, these American places, they wanted them, but most places didn't. Uh, one thing de Coubertine was sure about, he didn't want to postpone the games. And one thing the IOC was sure about, they didn't want to move them. But something had to give. Either they had the Olympics in Chicago in 1905, or they had them in St. Louis in 1904. In February of 1903, four months after the Chicago vote, de Coubertin made a decision that he would come to regret bitterly. He accepted the transfer to St. Louis. See, what another thing that's great about this, there are so many good setups here. Uh, that was, what, a year in advance of the actual event, you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah. Um, they would have been most of the way through building the stadiums for every modern Olympics, except maybe Russell's, I guess, um, several years in advance at this point, right? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that we're still uh, on narrow enough margins to be able to move these <laughs> events with like, only a year's notice. Yeah, it's a little over a year because that was February of 03, and then the the St. Louis Olympics started in like April of 04. So this part I titled James Edward Sullivan's Beautiful Dream. It does. I bet it's not beautiful. <laughs> it's horrible. All right. <laughs> Due to the considerable antipathy between Pierre de Coubertin and James Sullivan, coupled with de Coubertin still being upset about how bad the games in Paris went, he washed his hands of the 1904 games, refused to have anything to do with it, and refused to go, and later remarked that he, quote, had a sort of presentiment that the Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. Ooh, sick girl. <laughs> Damn. He's a French uh, aristocrat. Like, he's got some good quotes. Although de Coubertin did send two IOC surrogates, Ferenc 
Kneni of Hungary and Lillibald Gebhardt of Germany, this left Sullivan free to make the games in his own image, without any of that posse French nonsense of things being fair or convenient for foreign athletes to compete, or not setting up events with a specific intention of humiliating and degrading the athletes competing in them, or designing the marathon with a fair race in mind and not conducting experiments on the athletes without their knowledge or consent. <laughs> it was fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, honey, this is right. I'm going to be focusing primarily on the events that are now IOC official Olympic events, like I did with the 1900 Games. Although, the St. Louis Games had the opposite problem. While pretty much nothing was identified as Olympic in Paris, absolutely everything was called Olympic at St. Louis. I'll brush up on some of the more outrageous examples of this later and give you some resources if you want to listen to or watch other podcasts and whatnot detailing this nightmare. One of the issues... Facing the 1904 games that we haven't touched on yet was the deteriorating political situation in Europe at this time. Um, I didn't mention this, but uh, Greece, oh wait, no, I did, I think in the last episode, Greece and Turkey were on again, off again at war with each other for a while during this time. Um, there it was, seems like it's going to be a consistent problem for some set of countries yeah. throughout. <laughs> at least up until like all World of War these periods. <clears throat> like up until World War One. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm and just, then after World War One, yeah, yeah, there's, and then before World War Two, yeah. and then after World War Two. Well, then the, the wars kind of get a little cold after that. I'm just waiting for the uh, when you tell us that the uh, tech show was also part of the Olympic thing. So, like, <laughs> did the gold medal go to the cell phone or to the incubating? Uh, the baby incubator. Yeah, I mean that one probably I mean, should have one. Yeah, I mean, like, give it to the baby. Sure. It doesn't seem like the cell phone's mm -hmm. very useful since there's just the one. So anyway, who are you gonna call? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in addition to Greece and Turkey, there was also the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Russia and Japan, Japan, which started in February of 1904 and lasted until September of 05, which I don't have time to even start to get into. But all this, coupled with the six-month length of the planned games and the inconvenient location, meant that a lot of European athletes just didn't go to the St. Louis Games. Which suited Sullivan just fine. He was not really interested in the Olympic ideals of everybody competing on equal footing and all that. Like I said, he believed that the white American athlete was the pinnacle of humanity, and the games would prove that, and he had his finger on the scales to make sure that happened. He was... If they really thought that white Americans were going to be superior. No, I'm gonna, I see where you're going with I'm this. I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume white American men were superior. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll, <laughs> I'm just, we'll address... I'm, I know I'm, like, out in space making a leap here, but, uh... We'll address why, the issue of, of the women competing. Why, why, are we rigging, why are we rigging things? You know, you, sometimes you just want to make sure the data <laughs> works. Alright. Just, just a question. I'll put a pin in yeah. for later. We'll come back to yeah, it back constantly to it. Forever. <laughs> forever. For the rest of recorded history. Or at least the rest of this episode. <laughs> and maybe the next one. And I maybe mean, the next one. Yeah, depending on how long this one ends up being. <laughs> yeah. He was helped, of course, by the scarcity of athletes from any other country. There were actually fewer countries participating than last time, and maybe even fewer than in Athens. I'll just list them. There was Austra Australia... Austria, Canada, Cuba, Germany, Great Britain, Greece, Hungary, South Africa, Switzerland, and the United States. Those are some white countries. This is the first time the games have been across an ocean from the European continent. So there's yeah. a lot of small countries there that are immediately 
disadvantage from like showing up. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, we talked last time about how long it took Australian athlete to get to these things. I yeah, th- I mean that months. probably that probably actually moving it a year and a half in advance <laughs> totally like messed with their travel plans. Because it took them like three months. Like oh my god. Yeah. Oh um, why? Oh, just stay in Australia. I know everything's poisonous, but like. <laughs> Alright, so Wikipedia, so those are the ones that are IOC official. Wikipedia also lists Italy, Norway, and Newfoundland, 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 uh, which apparently was separate from Canada at that point. So there's three different countries separate from Canada, or? Oh, what? No. How many Canadas? I just said Newfoundland, like, okay. three different times. Alright, Phil Mallins points out that all of the athletes from Great Britain were Irish, so ar- arguably Ireland was the one that competed, but they were still under British rule at the time. Let's argue for Ireland was, yeah, yeah. was the one that competed. This is a this is a very heavily Irish po- podcast. Yeah, all out of how many? Because all of the UK. I'm guessing four. Actually, I think it was three. <laughs> all, all okay. Three out of three athletes from Great Britain from Ireland. Yes, from the Republic too, not Northern Ireland. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I couldn't find any information about what the deal was with Italy and Norway. But I guess with regards to Newfoundland, it was one that one of the Canadian athletes was from there. Newfoundland was an independent, independent-ish country for a while. One of those British colonies that was largely doing its own thing and was in the same category as New Zealand, I guess. But in 1949, they became part of Canada. So the official count of participating countries in the 1904 Olympics is 12, which is fewer than the 1896 Olympics, where the official count is 14. <laughs> Everybody real excited about doing sport. Yeah. As the at the previous two Olympics, the host countries definitely benefited from having more athletes who were able to compete. At St. Louis, this reached ludicrous levels. There were approximately six hundred forty-five athletes who competed at the St. Louis Olympics. Of those, five hundred thirty-five were Americans, including all six women who competed. They actually USA. USA. <laughs> I'm actually shocked by this. We'll get to what they oh. were allowed to compete in too. Is it knitting? No. Oh, no. Uh, the country with the second most numbers, a number of competitors, was Canada with 52. Germany had 18. Greece 16. South Africa 8. Hungary 4. Cuba and Great Britain both had 3. Austria and Australia both had 2. And Switzerland and France both had 1. Unlike the Parisian Olympics, there was an opening ceremony at the St. Louis Olympics. Sort of. The Olympics themselves started on July 1st and ended November 23rd. The opening ceremony was on May 14th, about six weeks before the Olympics actually started. But James Sullivan wanted an Olympic event every day during the exhibition, so he had one every day. On May 14th, they had the Missouri State High School Track and Field Championship for 1904, which James Sullivan titled the Olympic Interscholastic and this is what they held the opening ceremony for. So, gold medals for all of those students? <laughs> right. Because that will look great on college applications. Right. It was supposed to start at 2.30 p.m., but the exhibition president, James Rowland Francis, was touring the exhibition with some other dignitaries who were supposed to be at the ceremony, and they didn't get there until 2.50. President Francis was joined by Secretary of State John Milton Hay, James Sullivan, and some other guys who weren't listed in the book I used for most of my research. They led a procession of dudes in top hats to their seats in the stands. The band played the Star Spangled Banner once they sat down. Uh, Francis Hay and Sullivan then walked down to the starting line, where Francis shot the starting pistol for the first heat of the 100-meter race at 3 o'clock p.m., which was the official start of the 1904 Olympic Games. 
There's still no uh, Olympic music aside from the host country's anthem oh. at this point. Yeah, we definitely, definitely do not see those spectacle opening ceremonies uh, for a, a while. Um, I think not until there's something you can record it on, because... Sure, the pomp and circumstance, fine, but like some kind of IOC oh, fanfare, oh, music, yeah. any kind of instrumental. No, the, the Olympic anthem and, and the horns, like that doesn't happen mm -hmm. for a while either. They don't have the flag yet. That's not a thing. Um, they have the, 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 what's it called? Little slogan, Cities Altius Fortius, that's it. And then there's a couple other things that show up, but we'll, which we'll get to near the end, what they actually contributed. I mean, at this point, I think it's just worth being clear that it's not that they had it and the guy didn't play it. It was actually that it didn't exist yet. Yeah, no, which is somewhat better. Yeah. I wouldn't have really been surprised by either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there wasn't really a closing ceremony to speak of. The last sporting event was a high school football game on November 26th. But unlike <laughs> nearly every other sporting event, Sullivan didn't call it Olympic. Probably it was because it was between Carlisle and Haskell, two Indian schools. Which... <sighs> yeah. For those who don't know, uh, Indian schools were boarding schools where Native American children were forcibly sent in order to make them assimilate into white culture. So, most of the events were held at Washington University. They built Francis Field, the university stadium, for it along with the Olympic Stadium and the Fiscal Culture Stadium. All three structures still exist, almost in their original forms. Francis Field is the main stadium for Washington University. The Fiscal Culture Stadium is used for university phys ed classes, and I'm not sure what they used the Olympic Stadium for, but they did replace the cinder track in the 80s. It was a cinder track all that time, which was, like, very high-tech at the time that they did this. Oh, and sure. Better than the French... Mostly flat. Maybe yeah. no animals running and... Hold that Yeah, hold, Yeah, hold that thought <laughs> no animals. <laughs> but it also... It was a different type. It was a... It, the, the center track was a step above what they had in Paris, if you'll recall. They were just running around on the grass in the park. Yes. Um, so, uh, it, the 1904 Olympics, despite some significant differences, still suffered from many of the problems of the previous one. The excessively long time span and poor publicity led to very low numbers of spectators. Everything they did was completely overshadowed by the exhibition, and the press only really publicized the track and field events. The rest languished in relative obscurity, but don't worry, we'll go over them in as much detail as I can find, and it's interesting. But before we get to the official events, we're going to talk about one of the most shameful events to ever be associated with the Olympics, the Anthropological Games. Ah, the ever-ominous Department of Physical Culture. Yes. Finally. Which isn't the worst makes time. Makes triumphant debut. Yeah. I think we mentioned last time <clears throat> a bit of the human zoo aspect of the World Fair. Yes, it came up. Yeah. Essentially, the fairs would take place in, in the colonial power countries, and as part of their showing off how advanced and powerful they were, they'd have exhibits of exotic people from other countries. Basically, these people would be put in artificial approximations of their, quote, natural habitats and act out normal village life for a paying audience. Pretty much exactly what you imagine when you hear human zoo. Granted, these people were paid actors, but generally not paid well, and returning home after an experience like this often proved extremely difficult, if not impossible, due to exploitative contracts with their agents and managers, who are the ones making real money off of this whole thing. Uh, not to mention that their living conditions in a foreign environment were pretty poor, and a lot of them died of diseases like tuberculosis. Also, not for nothing, but they were run by the Department of Exploitation. Wait, at least they're being <laughs> honest about something. Are you for real? <laughs> That's what it was called. 
They were just like, they had a meeting one day and they were like, guys, like, this is fine. Exactly. What we're doing is great. And uh, that's what we're going to call ourselves. Exactly what it says on the tin. Yeah. That's kind of incredible. What? <laughs> yeah. So, specifically, the people at the St. Louis <coughs> exhibition on display included people from Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Uh, specifically, the Igorot from the Philippines, as these were all areas recently colonized by the United States. There were also some indigenous people from Mexico. Uh, there were Apache, Mohawk, Seneca uh, people. There were Tlingit people from Southeast Asia. Quote, Patagonians from Argentina. I don't know if that's what they called themselves, but they were like indigenous people from Argentina. And some Ainu, uh, Japanese people from northern Japan. That um, one is interesting. They're from Hokkaido, which... I wonder how impacted that was by the Russo-Japanese War at this time? I'm not really sure. It's suspect that they would have been in town. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Um, there were also Syrians and Turks. And Odabenga himself, as part of the Mbuti Pygmy people, were originally uh, originally from the Congo. You can get more information about Odabenga on episode 154 of the Dollop, Otabenga and the Human Zoos, and more about this practice of displaying humans from other cultures as sideshow attractions on episode 126, R.A. Cunningham and the Tambo. Warning, both of these episodes are really hard to listen to. It, it was horrible. Um, so James Sullivan, faced with the self-imposed task of presenting an Olympic sporting event every day for five months, looked around the fair and came up with an idea so brilliant that only a Sean Hannity-style American white supremacist could conceive of the anthropological games. Sullivan had a specific goal in mind with these events. He wanted to prove the idea of the noble savage to be false, and to prove the physical superiority of white Americans over all others. Keep in mind as we go through this, in the first half of the 20th century, and maybe before that, I'm not sure, it was widely believed that white by white people that they were physically superior, and black people in particular were smaller and weaker. That was part of the white supremacist deal at the time. The idea that black athletes could and would outclass white, white athletes in nearly every sport they have equal access to was just unimaginable, even for the average person who weren't as active a white supremacist as somebody like James Sullivan. It was just uh, kind of a common knowledge fact at the time. Which is kind of weird to think about. I mean, I don't watch a lot of sports, but that seems incongruous with... <laughs> Most of them now? Yeah, I would say. Uh, this event is also something that the IOC refuses to acknowledge as part of the Olympic movement. There is no official IOC report on any of this, and they do not talk about it pretty much ever. Uh, luckily, more or less, for us, there are plenty of contemporary sources and modern historians who won't let this gross indignity slide into obscurity. The Anthropology Days were held on August 12th and 13th. To help with his mission of disproving the noble savage, Sullivan invited a number of anthropologists and sociologists to observe. In particular, he teamed up with William McGee, an anthropologist eager to make his mark on the field and scientifically prove a racial hierarchy. They actually had problems getting people from the human zoos to participate because they got paid to be in the exhibits and they weren't going to be paid to participate in the games. The agents and managers were likewise uninterested. They did eventually gather enough people to put on a two-day program, although water polo had to be scratched. No loss. No, especially when we get to what happened with the water polo. Oh, God. With the official water polo. It was bad. All right. There weren't many spectators, at least. The event was thrown together at the last minute, and the Department of Exploitation didn't have enough time. I, to I can't. I can't. 
Like, I literally cannot. <laughs> I have to read this with a straight it's, face. It's like a parody. Yeah. It's, it's like a parody of itself. It is so absurd and so horrible. It sounds like a like a Monty Python sketch they decided not to do because it was too on the nose. Yeah. Like Yeah. It's very it very much has that vibe. Is John Cleese gonna come out and make everything all better in a few minutes? Uh so yeah, they were thrown together at the last minute and the Department of Exploitation didn't have enough time to mount any kind of advertising campaign. There were scientists who were invited, mostly anthropologists. It's worth noting that anthropology was still a new field at the time, and there were a lot of people attracted to the science who had a lot of heinous beliefs. And basically, like I said, wanted to use the field of anthropology to prove a racial hierarchy. As for the actual games, the first day was for Western-style games, and most of them were recognizable track and field events. Others were just nonsense they made up. Almost none of the competitors knew what was going on. Instructions for the games were yelled at them in English, and only English, and then they were told to do the game. This was for science, apparently. This is how science happens. Yeah. You scream at your subjects. The English system, the universally accepted system of language and measurement in science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fact. Mm -hmm. The way this played out was not great. For example, in the 100 meter sprint, nobody told them that the what the starting pistol was. So a lot of them thought it was actual gunfire. I mean, it is... Actual yeah, to be totally yeah. fair. But it's blanks. Well, and I don't know in yeah. this particular I'm, case that I would trust them. Yeah, to yeah. a bunch do of people, that, right? a bunch of people just rounded me up. A, bu a bunch of white people just rounded <laughs> me up and put me in a field, started screaming at me, and then they sh now they're shooting off weapons. No, yeah. thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. They didn't all know that they were supposed to run down the track, so some of them just stood there, and others slowly ambled along or jogged or went in the wrong direction. They didn't know they were supposed to run through the tape and snap it with their chest, so some of them ducked under, some of them just ran up to it and touched it, some ran around. Other events, obviously, because, like, these aren't obvious no. things. No! Like, none of this is a natural life. None of it makes any sense. Yeah. Um, it's all just accepted convention at this point. Um, somebody had to teach you to do that. All right, um, other events, like the high jump, long jump, shot put tennis, uh, and tennis all went similarly badly. One event in particular was a throwing of a 56-pound weight, which I'll explain more when we get to that with the, the rest of the Olympics. There were only They only got three athletes to participate. I think they were all Argentinians, and all of them refused a second round. <laughs> Day two was supposed to be the events more familiar for the competitors. The anthropologists, especially those of the pro-noble savage camp, had high hopes for the javelin and archery events in particular. However, while some of the participating athletes had some idea of how to use a bow and arrow, they were completely perplexed by the javelin. They fared poorly in both events. I don't know how many of these people actually use spears for hunting, but as someone who has some experience with throwing jab, I, I did like a year of track in high school and I threw javelin, I just want to explain a bit about how incredibly idiotic, on top of being shockingly racist, the idea that they'd be good at javelin really was. Because if somebody is using a spear for hunting, or maybe even warfare, it's a very different weapon than javelin. For one thing, spears are not always thrown if the target is close enough, and if they are, you're not running at, at them when you do throw it. Javelins are shorter, they have no blade at the end, and they're much lighter. They're designed to go long distances. Accuracy and injury on contact are not important. The balance is different, the throwing motion is different. It's just like, it's like assuming that just because somebody can throw a decent fastball that they'd be fine at quarterbacking in the NFL. Hmm. Yeah, I know javelins were used uh 
in warfare, javelins proper, not spears, by I believe like Roman centurions. But again, that's not really going to fall into your noble savage camp of uh, historical no. warriors. And they also were constructed differently. Like, the, again, the, the point was to hit something and hurt it, not mm -hmm. see how far you could throw it. Which is what the point of sure. like, the event is. Uh, so other, and, and they also, I think, they generally use a sling to throw it. I mean, that may also, that may also be true. I, I think, uh, all right, I think so. I mean, I don't know when that changed to just hand throwing it, but I know for a while it was like you would use a sling to throw these things and you were aiming it at somebody to hurt them, not just chucking it into the air to see how far you could get it. Well, you were generally throwing it as part of a wave of yeah, javelins yeah. that an entire battalion would throw True. at once. Um, all of this, so 100% analogous, so I'm, I'm hearing no yeah, problems right. with you. Uh, other events on the second day include fighting demonstrations, a tree climbing contest, which apparently an Igorot competitor actually managed to impress these jerks, a Senator Seneca versus Mohawk lacrosse match, and mud throwing. For Sullivan and the anthropologist, the event was a resounding success in proving their hypothesis, if a total failure in every other conceivable respect, and even a debatable success at proving the hypothesis, as all of their dearly held prejudices were confirmed by the power of irrefutable science, the idea of the, quote, noble savage, that people living in a state of nature would be athletically, naturally more skilled athletes due to clean living was proven demonstrably false, according to them. And, um... I, think, I have a quote here that might be from what you're going to read, which I guess wasn't written by Sullivan, but I have this. Uh, Sullivan wrote a report about how great it was, in which he declared that, quote, lecturers and authors will, in the future, please omit all reference oh, yes. okay, to athletic, natural athletic ability. In fact, this science was used as evidence for years to justify all sorts of bigoted policies and practices. As late as, okay, there's going to be some uh, not great language in this quote. As late as 1943, a Swedish sporting encyclopedia declared it is, quote, it is not possible to make sports stars out of American or African Negroes. I mean, this is after... That uh, language is not nearly as bad as what you just led me to believe. I was, I didn't like saying it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, and then you have the report... So, so the, uh... Spalding's official athletic almanac for 1905, colon, special Olympic number containing the official report on the Olympic Games of 1904, this is an interesting, uh, it's somewhat long title, uh, <laughs> is, is the source that I believe you were referring to several quote snippets there. Yeah. Uh, it is written about how one might expect, given all of that context. Um, seeing here, there's just a brief introduction. In the early months of the exposition, Exposition, the chief of the Department of Physical Culture had several conferences with Dr. W.J. McGee, chief of the Department of Anthropology, in relation to the athletic ability of the several savage tribes, and owing to the startling rumors and statements that were made in relation to the speed, stamina, and strength of each and every particular tribe that was represented at St. Louis, it was decided to inaugurate a two-day athletic meet for them to be known as Anthropology Days, the day is being named after the Department of Anthropology in honor of Dr. McGee, who used his influence towards making the days the brilliant success which they terminated in. Um, I don't love the use of the word terminated there. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of upsetting There are language. a lot of words in this paragraph. There are so many things. I'm focusing, I'm focusing in on... Um, I'm going to mostly skip uh, 
what is rather dry marking of different measurements in sports that are at best made up and at worst poorly explained. Sorry, <laughs> flip those. Yeah. Are there, are there, uh, there, there are a few uh, things that did jump out. Uh, the jumping of the Pygmies, the Ainus, and some of the Indians was really ridiculous. That is a sentence uh, that <laughs> indicates to me this person has not learned to write at anything resembling a middle or high school level. <laughs> really is a word that is to be stricken from basically all prose, as I understand it. It's not the strongest choice. Really? <laughs> uh, I will also point out, just as a brief note, that the Ainu are mentioned several times, and not on the first time that they are mentioned is when they explain in a parenthetical where they are from. So they understand that the reader's not likely to know this information, but choose not to present it until much later Just in the assume article. assume that they won't care. Yeah. And again, they were from Japan. Uh, the Pygmies and the uh, Kokopa Indians at the conclusion of the day's sports gave an exhibition of their shinny game, which required teamwork and the uninteresting, which required teamwork, and then there should have been a comic here, sorry. And the uninteresting exhibition showed conclusively the lack of the necessary brain to make the team and its work a success. For they absolutely gave no assistance to each other so far as teamwork was concerned. They're not going to explain what that game even was? I don't believe that they do. So They didn't bother to explain it to the participants. Why would they tell us what it is? <laughs> they go on to say it was a case of purely individual attempt on the part of the players. The same could be said of both games. Referring to, I believe, the so, shinny game, and also, perhaps, uh... So how do they know it's supposed to be a teamwork game, and not just, like, a free-for-all? The implication here is that this was one of the tribal games that they were expected to have knowledge of because it was one of theirs. Okay. You are correct that they do not, then, feel the need to explain this game in any capacity to the presumably American readers <laughs> of this article. Um, I will say that the, uh, you mentioned mud throwing. Yes. Uh, that sounds kind of fun as described here. The Pygmies indulged in one of their favorite game pastimes, a mud fight, the two sides being selected, and it reminded one very much of a snowball fight of the average American boy. I think that they were just kind of having a fun afternoon yeah. uh, forcibly off of work yeah. insofar <laughs> as they could. It's, again, unclear that there's any game in the sense of scorekeeping or victory here that the uh, writers of the article had any conception of. Yeah, I think they were just goofing around at that point. Uh, I will say when we do reach the conclusion, uh, yeah. there are a number of sentiments, uh, as what you mentioned earlier. Um, Dr. McGee attributes the utter lack of athletic ability on the part of the savages to the fact that they have not been shown or educated. He thinks perhaps if they could have the use of a professional trainer for a short time, that they would become as proficient as many Americans. The writer doubts it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Uh, uh, then there's a, a mention of the, in running the heats, uh, coming to the finish tape, instead of resting it or running through, many would stop and others run under it. Um, which is framed here as a failing on their part. <laughs> instead of, like, nobody explained to them what that thing was. Uh, indeed. Well, they don't explain to the reader any of what they're referring to. Why would we think they explained it to the athletes? Well, we know they didn't explain any of this to the athletes. Uh, and then the very concluding paragraph, 
lecturers and authors will in the future please omit all references to the natural athletic ability of the savages unless they can substantiate their alleged feats. Oh boy. And yeah, like you said, uh, William McGee, I think, uh, was one of the few who uh, voiced any kind of opposition to this with the suggestion that maybe if they had known what they were supposed to be doing or had a chance to train, they could do it better. Um, and he didn't do much to argue this, as he wanted the results to say the same thing as Sullivan did, and for his part, never actually published a report on the event. Hmm. So, the other, the other most notable uh, voice to criticize this was de Coubertin. While not personally there to witness it, he was quite displeased with the humiliation the athletes were put through, with his creation ostensibly adding legitimacy to it. However, he had no concerns about whether or not it would be something worth dealing with in the future, because, and this is, uh, he has some great phrases, turns of phrase here, uh, de Coubertin said, quote, As for that outrageous charade, it will be, of course, it will, of course, lose its appeal when black men, red men, and yellow men learn to run, jump, and throw, and leave the white men behind them. So. <laughs> quite, a, quite a bit of foresight. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he wasn't team, like, you know, white physical superiority. Um, at least not at this point. I, I haven't gotten even close to what he did in 36, so maybe oh. that changes. I don't know. Um, maybe he's uh, well and washed his hands of this, by the way. I don't, I don't remember. He's around for a while. All right, so archery. Uh, oh, now we're getting into, like, the actual legit events. <laughs> like, IOC recognized these are the people listed on the website as being uh, Olympians. Archery is the first in a series of events from the 1904 Olympics that are of dubious or dubious Olympicness. The IOC officially recognizes them and the winners as Olympians. Also, we have multiple extensive first-hand sources, so the records of the event are quite good. Um, oh, but again, I'm using uh, Bill Mallon's book about the 1904 Olympics for a lot of my research. Um, he had one about the, I used his 1900 book for the last episode, and he actually has a series going up to, like, 1920, so he's going to be with us for a while. Um, but he point he points out a few problems with the whole idea of it being Olympic, uh, the archery event, in his book, The 1904 Olympic Games, Results for All Competitors in All Events, with commentary. The first problem is that the event was basically the United States National Championship of the National Archery Association. Basically or literally? Basically. Uh, to the point where only Americans competed, save for a handful of Filipinos and some of the from some of the Lanao Moro tribe, although I think they hmm. just registered, but then didn't end up competing. I'm not sure. Um, the rules printed on the program included a statement that medals of the NAA open only to comp competitions of members. Competitions for medals offered by Universal Exposition open to all archers. So officially, non-Americans could possibly compete for medals in the championship, but this doesn't matter because all the competitors are American. But, again, also, literally, this was the championship of the American League. They just did both at the same the, time. With the same shots. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't, like, have them do two rounds or whatever. Um, if So I guess if, like, if they had done a round and there was, like, I don't know, a German actually competing, it would be the top Americans would be the NBA champions. I assume champions, that you just filter out and yeah. then give the first place of the American championship <laughs> to the silver medalist of the Olympics if that right. happened. Yeah. Or however... Um, there's also conflicts between all those first-hand accounts and the official records. For example, there are several sources that list a women's team round, but it's not part of the official record. There were no professionals competing in this one, at least. 
As for the actual events, the men had a double York round, a double American round, and a team round. The double York round was two single York rounds, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Each round consisted of 72 arrows at 100 yards, 48 arrows at 80 yards, and 24 arrows at 60 yards. Uh, a, double Ameri a double American round, again, was two single rounds, morning and afternoon. Each round consisted of 30 arrows at 60 yards, 30 arrows at 50 yards, and 30 arrows at 40 yards. The team round consisted of four men per team, each shooting 96 arrows from 60 yards. The women had a double national round and a double Columbia round. National round, same deal, two single rounds, morning and afternoon, each consisting of 48 arrows at 60 yards, 24 arrows at 50 yards, and the double Columbia, one morning and one afternoon, each round, 24 arrows at 50 yards, 24 arrows at 40 yards, and 24 arrows at 30 yards. I didn't go through this in the French one because all of their events were listed in French with no translation of what any of these things were. Right. Americans swept, surprise, surprise. Of the men, the most dominant athlete was G. Philip Bryant. He won gold in both men's individual events and helped his team win the bronze in the team event. Also, Reverend Galen Carter Spencer was part of the gold medal winning team at the team event, making him the oldest American Olympic gold medalist ever at the age of 64. And the silver medal team included Samuel Duvall, who at 68 is the oldest American Olympic medalist ever. Good for them. Yeah. A little trivia. As for the women, the one standing head and shoulders above all was 17-time American champion Matilda Lita Scott Howell. Incidentally, her father was also an Olympic archer who competed at the 1904 Olympics. Thomas Scott, who at 71 at the time, is the oldest person to compete in an Olympic archery event. He didn't medal, though. Archery was the only sport in which women were allowed to compete in the 1904 Olympics, and only six women athletes, all American, and five from Ohio, competed. Interestingly, not the state in which the games were held. Yeah. Okay. Well, everybody's just from Ohio. I'm going to skip mm, down. That's actually a fact. Counterpoint. I'm going to skip down a Some little bit. Some people are not from Ohio. Interesting. I'll hear an argument. Because we're nearing the end of the hour, and um, the next thing is... Athletics, which is what they called track and field, and that's a long section. I mean, let's just take back a that. very, very small silver lining in that the event, as questionably managed as the bookkeeping and the participants was, seems to have occurred and been an archery event in which no one was shot and <laughs> no trees were impacted. Yeah, true. <laughs> All right. So the next thing we're going to do, because we're skipping athletics, we're going to come back to that because it's a very long section and includes the marathon, which is, you may have There's heard. There's a metaphor in there somewhere. Yeah, but you may have heard about how bad the 1904 Olympic marathon was, and we're going to get into that. I want to give more time to it in the next episode. So, basketball is what we're going to talk about now. Uh, Bill Mellon doesn't consider the 1904 Olympic basketball tournament to be of Olympic caliber, but since, pub but, but since publication of his book, the IOC decided that it was, so it's here. Mallon's argument that it isn't is due to the fact that, again, only Americans competed, and it was also the AAU championship for the year. How is that any different than Olympic basketball now? Boom. Burnt them. <laughs> burnt every no, other no. country. Nailed it. They Wrecked all, them. They also... Don't say that again. Sorry. <laughs> they had the oddly strict rule that all members of the team not only had to be from the same country, but the same club. And finally, basketball is ju was just not a game that people outside America played at the time. 
it had been invented not two months before this, no, right? No, no. So. Okay. Were they still playing with peach baskets? Hey Probably. guys, yeah. I made up a new game. Let's compete at it in the Olympics. <laughs> it's an Olympic sport. <laughs> so I actually uh, invented it as an Olympic sport. And it's very clever. Where's that section about the the German Buffalo German team? Yeah. Is it oh, under? I did, I did not. Yeah, yeah, there is. is that it? Okay. Yeah, because we're gonna get to that in a minute here. So, uh, but due to this, that it's uh, I was oh wait okay. Uh, finally, basketball is just not a game that people outside of America play at the time. Something similar to that now would be considered an exhibition sport. The IOC's reasons for including it are because they said so. So, uh, due to this, we get to talk about the Buffalo German YMCA team, which is one of the greatest basketball teams in American history. And this is where in post you drop YMCA in the podcast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just sing it for us now? Well, trademark? <laughs> yeah. I don't know the lyrics. Um, okay, all right. And Wait. since <laughs> the lyrics are the name, and since your your uh, lovely hosts here all like basketball, we're going to talk about it. Uh, it was comprised of a total of nine men at any given time. They you know would cycle in and out. They completely dominated the Olympic tournament, winning their games with scores of ninety-seven to eight, seventy-seven to six, and one hundred five to fifty. Hmm. And when they got to the Olympics, they were on a winning streak that started in nineteen oh one when they won the Pan American Exposition. They had not been defeated since then. And so Sarah's going to read us a bit about the Buffalo German YMCA team. Just this, just this bit? Yeah, that, that extra. All right. Uh, the Buffalo Germans were a very small group of German-speaking men who played together as one of several teams sponsored by the Buffalo YMCA. The new Buffalo Central YMCA, which opened in 1903, was a huge organization with thousands of members, one of the world's largest YMCA associations. The famous Buffalo Germans basketball team had carried away all honors at the Pan American Exposition in 1901. At that exposition, eight of the country's leading basketball teams were entered in competition, and the Buffalo Germans won the championship by defeating all of the others. They scored a total of 81 points in the tournament to their opponents' 27. This is more remarkable because the average age of this team in the Pan American year was only 18. Following their Olympic triumph, the team manager arranged a countrywide tour, which included the playing of 87 games. And of these, they won 69, nice, and lost 18. In the 1907, in 1907, I'm reading history. In 1907, the team started the greatest winning streak of their career, playing 111 games from then through the season of 1910 to 11 without a single loss. During all these years, the team included only nine different men, and they carried only six on their tours. This great team began its career in the gymnasium of the German department of the Buffalo YMCA and played games and practiced there until 1905. An unfortunate misunderstanding with the administration of the German department forced them to leave the YMCA just as they were beginning the greatest years of their career. They reluctantly moved across the street to Orioles Hall and continued there for the rest of their career. In retrospect, it seems that the YMCA gave up a tremendous asset through this action. Like, yeah, that sounds about right. The Buffalo Germans represent a rare case of a whole team which has been inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. As single individuals, however, they remain obscure. Historian William G. Mokray credits the Buffalo Germans as perhaps being the first great professional basketball team. So yeah, I it's one of the nice stories from these Olympics. <laughs> they sound like lovely young men. Yes. Who like, young to men. Play, like to play basketball. And dunked on everybody. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I can't believe they... They, they would have winning streaks that lasted years. They scored literally like four times, three times. I can't do that. Are we sure points. that these aren't the... Uh, the bad guys from Space Jam. 
We can't. We actually can't be sure. We don't we know their names. We have no way of proving that they weren't. They were like, oh, they sound they sound like they're speaking some other language and must be German. They were probably space aliens from Space, space Jam. That's that's a fact. I that would, that could be true. I would agree with you, but for I actually want to give these guys the credit that they deserve. That's fair. <laughs> Except we don't have any of their names. It's very sad. I, I'm sure that their names are listed somewhere. I just didn't have that. Uh, it's weird. Information. So. So, yeah, like, so they, when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, was it, like, as that the team name or as individuals? I think it was as the team. Well, it, they were inducted as a team. It's yeah. unclear if they that, have the names in small print below. Yeah, yeah. that's... that. that I'm, sure they, was, I'm sure they have their names. Right? I am not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I ain't frank on this one. All right, so I think we're going to finish up today with a little bit about boxing. And uh, get into the rest of it tomorrow. Or ye ye old later. fisticuffs, yes. as they called it at the time. Fisticuffs. That's true. Again, that's a, <laughs> that's a fact. I just made it up. Okay, so boxing was a snooze fest the, in the actual competition. The most fun stuff happened outside the ring. So it was more like wrestling. Yeah. Uh, sort of. <laughs> the, we'll get into what the first WWE match. This, this, uh... <laughs> This boxing event was bizarre. All right, there were only 17 competitors in seven weight classes. Only the 135 and 145 pound classes had more than three competing. Okay. Again. Odd number. Yeah. Literally. Again, only Americans competed. This. So if you entered into boxing, you were guaranteed at least a bronze. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, even I might sign up. Yeah. Were they were they giving out bronzes at the time? Like, did they award a third place medal? Yeah. Because did they did, did have they, they done that? They haven't the done before. No, they haven't done that before. We'll get to what the medals okay. were. Um, but they did actually award a third place. They this did. This is the first time that they this did is, that. Yeah, so they, these guys were like, hell yeah. Yeah, they will all get at least a bronze. Uh, again, only Americans competed, despite the event ostensibly being open to competitors from other places. One noteworthy thing was that Oliver Kirk won gold in the 115-pound and 125-pound classes. He is the only boxer in Olympic history to win two gold medals at the same Olympics. In two different weight classes. Two different weight classes. Because you can always fight above your weight class. Ah, okay. You can't okay, fight okay. below it. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, although some rain, on his some rain on his parade is the fact that there was only one other competitor in the bantamweight class, George Finnegan, and two others in the featherweight class, Frank Haller and Fred Gilmore. And he got a bye in the first round of the featherweight class, so he boxed two matches and won two Olympic gold medals. That's just efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah I can't fault him for that. He's a great American hero, <laughs> is what it sounds like to me. He saw his chance and he took it. All right, the big drama came in the lightweight division. Carol Burton was a lo popular local boxer who entered as a lightweight. He fought and won his first round against Peter Sturholt. However, after it happened, it was discovered that Burton was an imposter. He was really James Bollinger, who had assumed Burton's identity because he thought it would get him better treatment from the judges. I'm sorry, what? Did he wear a giant false mustache? No, no. I think you can just lie about your name. They didn't have cell phones yet. <laughs> they didn't have they did, <laughs> but no one had them yet. They oh, hadn't been released to the public. They had one cell phone. They had one cell phone. <laughs> you couldn't call anyone. There was no one to call. Um, uh, but there were a lot of babies in incubators. Um, no, they didn't even have social security numbers at the time, and I don't think fingerprint. Identity theft is probably very simple. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah. It was. Oh man, you were a fool not to steal someone's identity. 
and to actually try to gain boxing fame. That's amazing, by the way. I um I didn't write this down, but I did some digging into this, um, and it turns out that a lot of boxers used assumed names at the time because boxing itself was considered such a like low brow profession that mm-hmm. like people didn't want to again be much associated. like current day wrestling. Yeah, I'm of course speaking but professionals. What are, what are you talking about? The Rock is super. He, everyone loves him. But not when he was a wrestler. That's un- that's untrue. Okay. So, uh, James Bollinger, who had assumed Burton's identity because he thought it would get him better treatment from the judges. Instead, it got him disqualified. Sturholt got a bye to the next round where he was beat by James Egan and finished in fourth place. Um, James Egan went on to win the silver medal, but did not hold on to his award for long. In 1905, it was discovered that he was also an imposter. <laughs> Wait, so he got to keep it for, like, a whole year. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were like, wait a minute. Like, what happened? Was he, like, out drinking one night? And he was I assume like, the real one showed up and wanted the medal. <laughs> I read in a newspaper that I won a silver medal. Oh, do you Olympics. think they got into a fight? Like, a street fight? Like, they started boxing on the street? No, I don't. I didn't hear oh, no bell. <laughs> over, the, over the medal? Because that's, in my mind, that's what happened. And they were both wearing fake mustaches at the time. I, and first um, of all, this hats. was like 1906-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1905-1
gold medalist, gold medals in two different weight classes. And then it was Peter, Johnny Boxing. Peter Sturholt, who is the actual bronze medalist, despite never having won a match. <laughs> so that's the story we're going to end on today, and we'll get into more nonsense. I am glad we found the high note. Yeah, the, 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 the boxing stuff is fun. And I, I like the basketball stories. There's the basketball stories is very hard. There's a couple so. highlights um, after that horrible anthropology days, and then we'll get into more nightmares to come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yay! So. Play the outro. Play the outro. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Twice, time. Yeah. Like, share, subscribe. <laughs>